Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Reclaimed. This is the podcast where we critically claim things twice. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And we are visiting uh, one of the more celebrated directors of his generation. Indeed. This is, uh, this is a big day, and it's a big movie. Uh, it's a prominent film from the 1990s. Uh, if anyone is new to Critically Reclaimed, uh, here's how this podcast works. Uh, we have a Patreon over at patreon.com slash Network, and anyone who contributes at any tier, even $1 a month, gets to vote for every episode of Critically Reclaimed. We pick a streaming service. We pick four catalog titles on that streaming service, at least two of which Whitney has never seen, and at least two of which I have never seen, and we let our patrons vote for what we're going to watch. And this time, we decided to look at the many, 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 many great offerings over at Criterion, uh, of which there are many. <laughs> many, uh, in fact. And, uh, yeah, we decided to go with Chungking Express, uh, which, uh, well, let's just play the clip. On the streets of Hong Kong, a mysterious woman, a young cop, and an innocent dreamer are about to meet, where mystery and romance collide. Miramax Films and Rolling Thunder Pictures present Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Usually I try to do a bit more of an intro than that, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, Chungking Express yeah, was uh, a bit of a big deal when it came out in the mid-90s. Um, this was celebrated by my boss. Uh, to the point uh, that is, I, I still am technically in the employ of Quentin Tarantino. Ah. Uh, I, I don't work there very often, but I go in like maybe once a month now. Yeah. So I'm still employed by Quentin Tarantino. I still uh, can't comment on his films. Hold on um, a second. You dropped this name. Uh, that's context, all right? I know this, it is. This is, this is a, a legit caveat. So No, in fact, it's actually been the bane of our existence mm. on more than one occasion because Quentin Tarantino is one of the most prominent filmmakers mm. of his generation and Whitney isn't allowed to talk about him. I'm not allowed to, I, I can say, like, Objective things, factual accuracy. Th- yeah, th- like his that, his second know, film was. Yeah, I, I can say Pulp that Fiction, the Pulp Fiction like, was his second film, and, and that yeah. it made a certain amount of, or that it was popular, or that it won uh, these Oscars or whatever. Yeah, like those kinds say, of things, I can talk to, but I can't say my opinion of these things. I can't say yeah. whether I liked them or not. Um, but when Quentin Tarantino he, uh, emerged in the night, this is yeah. the interesting thing about Quentin Tarantino is. Um, in the 70s, we had, like, sort of the film school filmmaker generation where... Yeah, your couple of Spielberg, Scorsese's, all those, of a sudden, those guys. All of a sudden, there was a new influx of filmmakers who had studied film, not from within the industry, like, through, apprenticeship, uh, through apprenticeships, but by but actual through, scholarly study. Mm, and in, in, in a college. And, indeed, that did have some impact on the way that they viewed cinema and the way that the types of films that they made and the way that those films interacted with and inspired others. Quentin Tarantino was part of the first generation of filmmakers who grew up with video stores. Mm. That was their education. Uh, And we started seeing filmmakers like uh, Richard Linklater, Steven Soderbergh, Kevin Smith, um, a lot of indie darlings. Another echo of... Well, of Breathless, and we'll get to Breathless in a second. We kind of have to talk about that, too. But um, So when Quentin Tarantino emerged as uh, a prominent filmmaker with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, he became the video store guy who became a filmmaker. And indeed, he still does this to this day. Anytime you hear him in an interview, he is rattling off movies often obscure or niche or underappreciated movies that have directly inspired him in ways that people 
might not have predicted or stuff that he really wants you to see. And indeed, the movie theater where Whitney works mm. is a movie theater that was a long-running independent uh, sort of retrospective mm. movie theater in Los Angeles. And when that was going under, Quentin Tarantino bought it and made it his own, basically his own private repertory theater. Yeah. Except it's free to all. Well, not free, but it's available to yeah. all to, to buy tickets and go see any movie Quentin Tarantino feels like showing. Yeah. The uh, the, the story of the new Beverly is um, uh, Sherman Torgan uh, was the, mm. the guy who was running it for many, many years, and when he passed away, uh, the, the theater sort of fell on hard times, and it was struggling a little bit, and uh, Quentin was a big fan of the theater, he stepped in, and uh, he bought it. He, he was just going to be the landlord, and the people who ran it were just going to keep on running it. Mm. Uh, story goes that uh, somebody bought a digital projector to install in it, so they could show newer movies at the New Beverly, and Quentin didn't like that. Uh, he yeah. is... Uh, He's a diehard film enthusiast. Yeah, yeah, like physical physical. celluloid nut. And uh, so uh, at the New Beverly, we only show 35 and 16 millimeter prints and nothing else. If there was room in that booth for a 70 millimeter projector, I'm sure he'd put one in there. Sure he would. But no digital. That that was a mandate. Um, So yeah, he, he has a very specific idea of how he wants his films to be shown at his theater. And it's his theater. So he gets to make that call. And a lot of the films we show there are his. Yeah. So, Quentin Tarantino, a big part of his brand mm. as a filmmaker and as a presence in the entertainment industry, has been someone who uh, is really big on introducing audiences to older or at least more obscure films that or otherwise just, might or have just been his aware. Favorite or just his favorite movies. But typically, his fa- he's not the most mainstream in when it comes to his taste. So a lot of his favorite movies are relatively obscure to the mainstream here in America. And shortly after he started becoming, you know, an Academy Award winning filmmaker, uh, he started working very intensely with Miramax and he actually ended up getting his own releasing company, which was specifically created so that he could release into theaters whatever he kind of fucking A-well felt like. (laughs) And the arguably or what has been said to be the film that made him want to do this was the film we're talking about today, which is Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, which had already come out uh, overseas, but had not made it to America. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 90s and prior, uh, international films came to America with... Uh, uh, typically, they seemed to only come to America if there was a general consensus amongst the distributors that there was mm-hmm. American appeal. Well, the, this is the uh, kind of movies Americans wanted to see, which meant that there was a lot of stuff that just never came here. The, the I mean, the history of uh, international film distribution in the United States is is wide and varied. And uh, yeah. uh, I, I actually, uh, I, if I can... Oh, look, here's another name I just dropped. Um, I, I used to intern for Roger Corman uh, nice. back in the early 2000s when I was fresh out of college. Mm-hmm. And uh, Roger Corman, he, he was a businessman of... Mm. Far more so than he was a filmmaker. Like he, he was he made some good movies. He made some good movies and his passion yeah. about film, but he understood that it was a good business to make money in, and that's how yeah. he kind of figured. He would make a lot of movies for super cheap, pre-sell them, and then if even if no one saw them, he would make money off of these yeah. things. Uh, so a lot of, and a good way to sort of scoop up a lot of we call it content now. Uh, he just scoop up all of these like international hits, like Ingmar Bergman movies and Fellini movies and distribute them in American theaters. Cost him almost nothing. Yeah. And the art house crowd would flock to these things. So yeah. because of uh, this schlockmeister, Roger Gorman, mm-hmm. a lot of these really classy foreign movies were getting, uh, or international films were being played in American cinemas. Uh, fast forward a generation or so. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I think it was might have been the popularity of Pulp Fiction and Quentin Tarantino that a lot of uh, sort of a new generation of uh, Asian cinema started making its way over to the United States yeah. because he was a big fan of uh, Hong Kong films. Yeah, these are Hong and uh, the, he, as you might have seen with Kill Bill, he's a big fan of Hong Kong uh, kung fu films like mm. the Shaw Brothers or Golden Harvest. Uh, there was also this giant wave in the eighties and nineties, in particular, of this new breed of crime cinema that was coming out of Hong Kong that was kind of influenced by what American gangster pictures were doing, somewhat influenced by what European gangster pictures were doing, films like Le Samurai or films like uh, Mean Streets, lots of uh, stories about uh, masculinity in a world of violence. Um, But there was also all of a sudden this injection of operatic violence. So imagine Mean Streets, but with a lot of slow-mo shootouts. Well, that was stuff like A Better Tomorrow. That was what John Woo was doing. And a lot of those movies... John Woo was like right at the forefront of this movie. Very much so. But he was not alone. There were a lot of other Hmm. contemporaries who were doing uh, similar work. Choi Hark, Ringo Lam. But um, these movies were starting to get noticed on home video. Oftentimes in home video releases without a lot of care taken to them. They were pan and scan. Oftentimes they were dubbed badly. Uh, They weren't necessarily getting major theatrical releases. And so there was definitely a cult that was starting to build and notice these, of which Quentin Tarantino was one of the people at the forefront. But they weren't necessarily all getting major theatrical distribution. And one such crime saga, Hmm. uh, which is an odd sort of description for it, since it's also intensely romantic, is Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, which is a film that is actually two stories, hmm. uh, indirectly connected by location, hmm. where uh, basically it's two cops and sad and, love stories. And, and the women they love. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 one is a cop who inadvertently uh, falls in love with a woman who is involved in organized crime, and another one is a cop who is so hung up on uh, a, a, a flight attendant who just left him that he doesn't notice that the woman who works at this uh, you know, hole-in-the-wall eatery is desperately in love with him and has actually started breaking into his apartment in order to clean up his life. And he's so self-absorbed he doesn't even notice it. <laughs> um, yeah, th- those are the two love stories. Uh, one of them is good. Oh, you only like one of them? Yeah, uh... I'm coming to the conclusion more and more that Wong Kar Wai is just not my bag. Interesting. Okay. Uh, I've, I've seen a couple... I really like his film Days of Being Wild. I haven't seen that one. And I really like his film Happy Together. Okay. Those are the two Wong Kar Wai films that I can just recommend wholeheartedly. There, I, to be honest, mm. as much as I like the Wong Kar Wai films I've seen, there I have a lot of gaps. Okay. I have a lot of gaps. In yeah. His film In the Mood for Love is often on the top of lists of the you know the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. I don't like that one that much. I know that that's going to get me into a lot of trouble in a lot of critical circles because that is a deeply beloved movie. I have not revisited it in a while, though Mm -hmm. I have argued that it is the only movie that critics are legally allowed to call aching. Yeah. Aching is a movie critics like to whip out a lot. And Uh, I'm like, no, no, we only in the mood for love. It's the only film we're allowed to call aching. Aching is another. Or achingly. That adverb only allowed to be attributed to something you're saying about in the mood for love. In the case of achingly, in the case of in the mood for love is also code for it. Not a damn thing happens. Oh, stop Uh, it. it. Look. It is a, Ma- Maggie, it is a Maggie, simmering. Maggie it is Chung a simmering looks great kettle. in that dress, and her hair is wonderful. It is a is simmering wonderful. kettle it's of wonder- passion that is never allowed it's, to boil over. It's like thirty perfume commercials strung together. <laughs> it's great looking. 
In the Mood for Love, if you've never seen it, yeah. uh, I like it when he does. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a while, though. Maybe, maybe it's aged badly, but... Uh, it is a story of a man and a woman who they're both married and they find out that their spouses are having an affair together and they start sort of bonding over that and then they start feeling things for each other and they're not sure if they want to have an affair together and if so, does that make them as bad as the people that they're mad at and so they're very conflicted. Yeah, and, and they, they communicate that by sitting in diners and looking at each other and not saying anything. I feel a lot, uh, to be fair, I feel a very similarly about a lot of French New Wave films that you like. That, that's true. That's, <laughs> that's, lot- and you know what? That's fair. And uh, speaking of French New Wave, let's bring up Breathless, because yeah. uh, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless is... Uh, Chunking Express is essentially a remake of Breathless, especially... Yeah, it's got uh, similarities. They're definitely, they, of, they're definitely of the same ilk. I feel like that first story, especially, mm-hmm. um, which is um, the cop who's involved with um, the the drug runner. Yeah, uh, that that feels a lot like Breathless to me, where there's like a lot of hanging out, and the way he's been measuring time oh, is yeah. through the expiration dates on canned foods. Okay, so, uh, let's, so this is weird, and I think it requires this, this a little is kind of setup. like a little, little bit of a quirky thing, and yeah, uh, a, I found this to be really amusing. The setup for the first. Uh, chapter in Chunking Express, which is a two-chapter mm-hmm. movie, is uh, there is a young and very sexy cop. Uh, he is played by, hold on, I want to make sure I get his name right, uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro, uh, who's been in everything. He's great. Um, he has recently uh, been dumped by the girl he's deeply in love with, and he keeps expecting her to come back. He keeps calling everyone he knows. It's like, oh, hey, we haven't spoken in a few years. Did my ex-girlfriend friend leave a message for me? Like that kind of thing. It's really kind of sad. Um, and, and, he's, and he's measuring the passage of time. Yeah. By, uh, uh, but, like, she's going to come back after X amount of time. Like, he's, he's just he's convinced her, himself. He's given yeah. her a month. In one month, she's going to come back. And he has decided that every day during that month, he's going to buy... This is so quirky, you want to slap him. <laughs> he's going to buy a can of pineapple. Like, you know, Dole pineapple. And he's In going syrup, to... Yeah. And he's going to get a can that expires... On May 1st. Like, he, he broke up with them on April 1st. It's going to expire. He's going to get these cans and they expire on May 1st. And every day he gets one. And after a month, when she has not successfully come back to him, and on the last day, he's having a freak out at the local convenience store because they got rid of all the old cans of pineapple. It's like, they're still good for one more day! He gets drunk and eats all the pineapple. <laughs> Which is mm. such a... Fucking lovelorn teenager thing to do. The men in this, the men in this movie, are absolute emotional children. Yeah, they're they're, 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 they're both so they're both romantic pre- and sad. They're, they're both pretty pathetic. Uh, there's uh, the but you know counting down like uh, yeah expiration dates on cans you know I'm, yeah. I'm not sure if you've ever gone through like a really bad breakup where you actually start delving into mm-hmm. strange details around you just to sort of keep your mind occupied with something yeah sure it's it's a common mm-hmm. thing like especially your first romance yeah, like or I, two I, I, I had a really uh, really yeah. bad breakup once and uh, for, for whatever reason I got really into Radio Disney at that time <laughs> uh, that kind of thing yeah so I, you know I can sing you all the lyrics from Hey did, Juliet I, by Element I remember one time I had uh, I would just do nothing but listen to different sad covers of Radiohead's Creep <laughs> just, <laughs> just sing along yeah, but I'm a creep <laughs> I'm a weirdo this is my favorite mix it's what nothing the, but versions the, of Creep what the hell am I doing here <laughs> I don't belong here I don't here. belong here I don't so, belong here th- there is something and not only is that like really adolescent but that's also like really of the era that's something you'd yeah. see a lot in the 90s these weird kind of 
uh, aching romances. Of, <laughs> not in the mood for love. You're not allowed. Oh, sorry. Yeah. This, this, is, is, proto filmmaker. this is proto-aching. He hadn't done it in the mood kind for of, love yet. That kind of proto-aching. Thank then, you. Uh, that, you know, like <laughs> young hipster coffee shop 90s poets would do. Like yeah. these trying to delve uh, into sort of the deep meaning of the very commonplace. That was a, yeah. like a, an aesthetic trend at the time. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it feels very much of a of of the era, and because I was around at that time, it it did sort of like hit a little bit of a nostalgic note for me. Fair enough. Uh, the, uh, the the plot though and, and, is and everybody's like so stylish, and that's the part of the movie where things are really moving along. It is yeah. just the, this guy kind of mourning and getting like cans, yeah. but he's bickering with people. There's a lot of different characters. Yeah. He's going through this weird journey. People don't quite understand him. Yeah. And the, meanwhile, and the drug runner is actually like going through a lot of these dramatic things where she's yeah. selling drugs and auctioning things the, off. The drug runner is played by Bridget Lynn. Uh, she's got this fabulous blonde hairdo. She's mm. wearing sunglasses at night. Very stylized. Mm. Very more De Palma than anything else. Well, um, and that's why I wanted to compare this to uh, Breathless. It's all because style over it, yeah, practicality. That, that, well, yeah. And that these characters are c- clearly emulating their own selves after yeah. what they've seen in the movies. Which very is so. kind of the, the whole theme of Breathless. Yeah. No, she, she is engaged in uh, helping uh, a group of men smuggle drugs uh, through customs at some airport. And they all vanish. They're like just they just steal the drugs. Mm. I don't know why I've never seen drug mules do that before. <laughs> so they think, well, I've got the drugs. <laughs> why don't I just take them? Uh, and so she's in trouble with the guy who she works for. And if she doesn't find the drugs within like, then he gets an, she has an expiration date as well. If you don't find the drugs by then, he's going to kill her. Uh, and uh, the expiration date on the guy's love affair and the expiration date on her life happen to be the same night. And they both decide to get really depressed and drunk in a bar. <laughs> And so they end up just sort of being drunk and sad and cool, like next to each other and like smoking cigarettes <laughs> and drinking and drinking cool looking booze. And like, that's it. And that's like the most, that's the biggest love affair of their lives that didn't even have, they didn't even kiss. <laughs> it's like, and they're both never going to forget this because at the end of it all, this changes this cop's life. And then she ends up... <laughs> killing the guy who's gonna kill her and presumably goes off and becomes either a fugitive, a fugitive or yeah. or perhaps a new drug kingpin i don't know <laughs> or I, both I, I assumed a, a few like she'll just vanish and that's uh, yeah. the, the tragedy of that romance and that's uh and that's a that's a good is that the one you liked or is that the one you didn't that's like? the one i like that's the one you liked yeah. okay uh the second romance and this is the one i like more yeah I, I like I, the first one i, I, I like I the first figured, one too yeah. but this is the other one is the one i like more uh it stars tony leung uh who if if you're New to Chinese cinema, you might if, know him from. If you're new, well, like you might know him from Shang Chi. He mm-hmm. was the bad guy in Shang Chi, but he's also been one of the best actors in the world for like the last thirty five yeah, years. He has like four hundred credits. Yeah, he's and he's amazing in almost everything. He's in in the mood for love. Uh, he's done some uh, John Woo films as well. He's incredible. Please seek out everything he does. He's a genius. Uh, he plays a cop again. His uh, he was dating a flight attendant. She was only came to town when she was in town, mm-hmm. and uh, she dumped uh, yeah, him. It, and, and they, it wasn't like a serious thing. It was like he was clearly in love with her. She, she was, was just have, she was just having a regular fling with this guy. Yeah. So he's he's absolutely devastated. Uh, he would go to the same late night hole in the wall uh, eatery, uh, and he would get her the same thing every single night. And then one day, the guy who works there says, "What if you get her something different?" And he's like, "Well, I don't know. She seems to like this." And he comes back the next day. Yeah, she wanted options. <laughs> so he ends up getting her different foods, and then eventually she realized that she wanted options for the man she was dating, too. And mm. now he's super sad, and the young so woman all... who works there, played by Fei Wong, mm. um, is 
absolutely enamored of this devastatingly handsome, romantic, sad sack uh, cop. The, the, the Fei Wong character is the primordial stew from which Manic Pixie Dream Girls evolved. Uh, yeah, I feel like this she, one. This she, one was she's sincere, got, though. She's got uh, you know, sort of like the the wild, unconventional haircuts, like yeah. cut really short. Yeah, she dresses kind of weird, and she has all these quirks. She likes listening to uh, California Dreamin'. Yeah, old, well, old fifties uh, and sixties rock, mostly most, California Dreamin'. That they repeat that one and, uh, a lot, but there are other but, songs and she, they play. And she too. likes to play it so loud you can barely hear her speaking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on the soundtrack, we also hear um, the Cranberries. Was it dreams? Dream, dreams or dreaming? Dreams. Dreams. Cran- the Cranberries. Yeah. Dreams, which is covered song. by that I, actress, yeah, Fei Wong. Fei Wong. She was yeah. a pop star as well, so she sings great it cover in, in, in Chinese. Great cover. I mean, again, nostalgia, child of the nineties. But that's I, also I a good song. cover of that. that yeah. That's a good song, and that's a good cover of that. And, song. and she she emulates uh, the the Cranberries lead singer. Very in fact, well I, as well. this is one of the movies that I think helped solidify that song in the pop culture firmament. It was a hit mm. song, but there were a lot of hit songs in the nineties. I think mm. this was one of those times where it was used in a new context, and a lot of people will associate it now with Chunking Express. Yeah, okay. I, I just knew the song. Okay. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that, that one plays on the soundtrack a lot as well. Yeah. Uh, she sneaks into his apartment and does quirky things like fix it up. And well, he's a, to he's, be fair, he doesn't just break sack. in. Well, he's a sad sack yeah. who doesn't notice that this girl's in love with him. Uh-huh. He's uh, just like, he, he needs to be picked up, right? That's his yeah. story. He's because he's depressed and he is yeah. lovelorn. Yeah. And... She, this, this energetic young thing with all these quirks comes in and tries to fix him up, and that's uh-huh. a manic pixie dream girl story. I get that, but you're here's the here's here's what I'm going to say about that mm. though, because I see your point, and okay. you're not you're not wrong, but I want to consider uh, but this. I am from a, reductive, you see. I, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even say reductive. I would just say your your angle is a little skewed. Because I would argue that the manic pixie dream girl that we, which is a trope that. I believe was codified after the movie. Was it Elizabethtown or Garden State? They both came out around the same time. It's the same movie. But I'm trying to remember. But <laughs> it was codified for one of those movies. Uh, I think it was Garden State, actually. Okay. The, the Natalie Portman character. But around the same time, there were a couple of indie movies that had a very similar premise, which is, here's I, I, a sad I need, I need dork, and he the, gets... Uh, yeah. The, the, the origin of that who, phrase. Uh, yeah. yeah, came up with that phrase. Here's a sad dork whose life is... Uh, rather drab, and he's in a rut. And then he meets a, a, a female character who is exciting, energetic, mm. interested uh, in weird stuff. Yes, it, it was uh, it was Nathan Rabin, and okay. it, and he actually did uh, coin it in reference to Elizabethtown. It was Elizabethtown. Yeah. Garden State Elizabethtown came out at similar times, mm. so I see how I did that. But basically, but both Garden State and Elizabethtown are the same thing. There's stories about sad men whose lives aren't going the way they mm-hmm. want, and then they run into an extremely energetic, eclectic, quirky woman who, from a narrative perspective, only seems to exist for them. Mm-hmm. I exist in order to get you out of your run. I'm like some magical being that was called forth to help you know, Aladdin get the princess, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, she is divinely sent to fix your life. Essentially, yes. Um, I would argue she, she that no, that's... No, no real agency of her own. Yeah. She has no dreams of her own. Right. She's not going to do anything to shake up your complacency uh, that has anything to do with... Uh, mm. that, that doesn't have anything to do with fixing you. Agreed. And I understand that. However, I would argue that that's not quite Faye and Chunking Express. That trope had not been codified yet. And although Faye is definitely part of the DNA of it, and I'm mm. certain... Uh, that I, people I did like, call I'm, her primordial suit. I'm, certain, I'm sure that Zach Braff and or Cameron Crowe, who did Garden State and Elizabeth Town, 
one or both of them, I'm sure, saw Chunking Express. I'm sure at some point in their heads, a character like Faye was part of this idea. But this goes back even further. One could argue that that's true of Catherine Hepburn and bringing up Baby as well. Uh, so it goes back further. But I would argue that Faye is not, does not only exist to help Tony Leung out, because Tony Leung never finds out she did any of that. It is not about her being there for them. It is about her insinuating herself into this guy's world for her own weird, creepy gratification. <laughs> she is weird and creepy about this. She gets uh, the the flight attendant leaves a message. She knows where the fucker lives. She could slide it under the door. Instead, she leaves a message at the restaurant where he goes, hmm. and the message is a dear John letter, and it includes the house keys. And Faye is going to give it back to Tony Leung And Tony Leung figures out that it's a Dear John letter And says I don't want it And so every single person at the restaurant has already read it They know the keys are in it She decides she's going to go break into this motherfucker's house Because it gives her a weird thrill And then it also gives her a weird thrill To do things like tidy up And replace his stuffed animals it's Add more fish to his fish tank She's fucking with him now, granted, I don't think she's fucking with him in a way to try to scare him. Mm. I think she's just doing this to just be kind of weird. This is for her. She's doing right. this for her to be kind of manipulative because she's attracted to him. She's in love with him, but uh, she I, doesn't I, have I a healthy. A... She doesn't have a healthy way of doing it. Mm. I would actually argue that this is not that romantic. It's actually kind of bizarre, well, I, I and it's just two people it's... unable to connect because yeah, they I, can't. I don't think it's romantic, and I don't think this is about a. a, a... I guess it is about a lack of connection, but yeah. I, I don't, I don't think she's doing it for her own edification. Mm. I think she's she's doing it to try to help him out because she's attracted. to I him. think that's I think that's what she thinks she's doing, and indeed, um, on a surface level, she is because she's cleaning his apartment. Yeah, uh, because she's you know doing little things, but she's not actually engaging him in a meaningful way to change his life. She's mm. just. Doing little things around the house. Well, she, she's doing that's not that's quir- not actually fixing that. He, anyway, that's not actually fixing him. It I doesn't think. matter if he, she actually is doing it. That she's trying. She's doing uh, her her quirk attack to try to help him out. I, but I would argue that it's not actually helping him out if he doesn't know she's doing it. Well, it's just this I, again, weird thing I, happening in his house. It, it doesn't matter if it's actually it's like working. The, it's, it's like, like you don't doing. know your house is haunted. It's still <laughs> haunted. Yeah, but the ghost isn't necessarily trying to do anything mm-hmm. to you. And I would argue that she's definitely into him, and this is her way of expressing affection without ever actually telling him anything. Mm. And that is a weird form of selfishness. And I would argue that that is odd, and mm. it's kind of fantastical in the way that it is presented. But I don't really feel it's as Manic Pixie Dream Girl as mm. a lot of those later versions yeah. are, um, because it's more about what she wants and how she's incapable of. T- she could just tell this guy she's into him mm. at any time. And then he would be, he might say, cool. And indeed, the one, the couple of times they run into each other, there's this weird bit where um, he runs into her at his apartment complex, not realizing that she had just broken in. And he invites her over and they just hang out for a little bit. Mm. And he says, uh, hey, you want to listen to this CD my, uh, my ex-girlfriend left me? And she says, sure, that's great. Not realizing that it's a CD she left. He's so absolutely out of it that he can't imagine anything in his life didn't have something to do with this other woman. And she lets him continue with that fantasy. Um, it concludes with them actually, him finally realizing what has happened, actually asking her out, and then her getting total cold feet and running away. 
And she leaves him a note and he leaves it out in the rain. It's like, oh, another one of these. But then he can't help himself and he reads it. And it was uh, information about where to meet in one year, but it was raining and all the ink ran. Mm. <laughs> and so that's kind of almost where it ends. And then a year later she shows up and she goes to visit. It was her cousin's shop. And she, the cousin's shop is now being run by Tony Leung. He decided he, he to quit being it, a cop yeah. because he wasn't doing much good as a cop. So he might as well run a restaurant. Uh, that ending was changed on the fly. Uh, this movie was shot over the course of three weeks while another Wong Kar Wai film, Ashes of Time, was on hiatus. They had already started shooting it and he just needed something to make yeah. in this chunk of time. And so he would he would write the scenes like the day before he shot them. It was all stuff that he could do on a low budget. And the original idea was there was going to be this big sort of, it's my understanding, this kind of Hollywood ending where they met at the airport and it was kind of romantic and then they couldn't get an airport. <laughs> so uh, they well, had to find some cheap ass way to do this. I'm glad they didn't find an airport. I think that, that would have made it a lot worse. I think this is a much better ending. Mm-hmm. It's still, listen, I'm not going to pretend that the second story in Chunking Express mm. isn't twee. Of course, yeah, it's tween. I, I, I think I'm I think, not pretending it's not. Tween. I think that the tween is, is is what's kind of turning yeah. me off a little bit. And I can appreciate uh, that. I don't mind a little twee, and I mm-hmm. actually think that there's a, there's just enough uh, uh, character and sadness in these people that it doesn't feel like just cutesy. It feels mm-hmm. like just odd people who they're just too odd for their own damn good, and they can't quite get out of their own way. I. I, I this might be a strange comparison, but the, mm. the characters uh, remind me in a way of the characters from uh, a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah, I can see that. Because uh, if, yeah. if you look at the Wes Anderson characters, like the kinds of characters he writes, they are uh, slaves to their own passion. Yeah. They uh, need to dress as neatly as possible. Mm-hmm. They need to be color coordinated. They're, they're just constantly dr- trying to control they're, they're, the, yeah, they're, the world they're, around they're them. They're driven yeah. by this like kind of obsessive compulsive almost uh, drives mm-hmm. to, to be as sort of like in these little dioramas that Wes Anderson yeah. likes to film. Yeah, they're safe and, that way. And, uh, and when somebody approaches them, they never interact with people outside of their own comfort zone. They always yeah. use their own language to, to communicate with people. I feel like these people in Chunking Express are also similarly trapped mm-hmm. within their own uh, neuroses, obsessions, uh, version of the world that they've imagined around them. Right. And uh, it's, you know, about those bump, those bubbles kind of bumping into one another. Right. Uh, inside those bubbles, they're very much affected by movie characters. So mm-hmm. I'm, uh, so I'm going to bring it back around to, uh, to breathless again. Sure. All of these characters are taking a lot of their behaviors and their romantic cues from, uh, from art. They're emulating what they've seen on screens. Uh, movies don't play a big part in this movie, but I feel like Chunking Express is going to play better for people who know a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. This is... Uh, it's, you, it's a, you, the style you, is the substance. Exactly. Here, you, you brought it up at the, at the head here that this is made by a, a filmmaker who was raised on the filmmakers who were raised on film school. Yeah. This is like a generation hence. So this is like a, another copy of a copy and that's what this kind of film looks like. Mm. There's something kind of exciting about that. Sure. You get to see sort of a, a new evolution kind of come, and, come to the fore and that was yeah. happening a lot in the 1990s. Uh, and uh, you can see a lot of like what Wong Kar Wai is getting at, what f- cinematic sources he's quoting a lot. Yeah. He's not borrowing exact shots but he's taking a lot of the attitudes. Yeah. And uh, I feel like it works some of the time. But in that second half of the story, it does start to kind of 
go a little long in the tooth. Oh, the second and story, I feel, really, is, yeah. I, I'm not sure I didn't count. I think the second story is meaningfully longer than the first. Yeah, I think it's like one third and two thirds. And yeah. I feel like if it were half and half. Probably be or, a little Or if he added a third story, it would have been a little bit better. Well, you know, originally there was going to be a third hmm. story. And then uh, that story he decided was strong enough to handle on its own. And it ended up becoming uh, his film Fallen Angels. Okay. In 1995, which is about a uh, it's about a hitman who falls in love, oh, okay. and it also stars uh, Takashi Kaneshiro. Um, so. I, I wish he had done it. Um, <laughs> well, he did. He made, made it into another no, movie. Just, it just had made it into sort of a proper yeah. triptych. Maybe maybe uh, you'd like Fallen Angels. Well, I haven't seen Fallen Angels. Yeah, so maybe, maybe so. like him, um, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I'm a little underwatched on my Wong Kar Wai, so maybe yeah. that's that's uh, yeah. well, I'm not sort of well, on on his, his same wavelength yet, but. Uh, when well, like he, I said, I, I think yeah. I think when he's doing something like Days of Being Wild or mm-hmm. Happy Together, there's there, I'm feeling those movies a little bit more for their like punk rock outsider qualities, yeah, rather than something like this, which feels a little bit a little bit more. It doesn't make it a bad film, by mm-hmm. the way. I actually do like this movie, but it feels a little more like an affect well, in this than it has in the other films. I think this movie is about affect, though, and I think well, that's something absolutely that, it is. But yeah. that also can be a, a might alienating. Perhaps, but I actually think what this movie, to, to me, how this movie can act, mm. uh, is that it's about affect, but it's also about peeling away what's underneath that affect. So what is, what is this story really? This is a story about two cops. Mm. This is a cop movie. Do they do any cop stuff? There's like one shot of Takeshi Kaneshiro like chasing a guy, yeah. but it's not important to the plot. It doesn't connect to anything. Donnie uh, Leung does... Nothing. He eats. He goes home, he's sad, and he goes out, and he eats. They do no cop stuff. There's a criminal. The cop interacts with the criminal. There's no cat and mouse to it. It's completely irrelevant. And I feel like what uh, Wong Kar Wai is doing here, and it's something that I mentioned before other uh, filmmakers were doing in Hong Kong, there was a dissection of machismo. Mm. That was emerging in this in this era. It had already done so by the time uh, Chungking Express came out in 1994. But the macho action films that I think were really breaking out mm. of the Hong Kong cinema scene at this time, and there are a lot more that were just far more just conventionally gung ho guns kind of thing. But yeah. the ones that tended to, to to break out and have a huge influence are the ones that weren't just brainless crime movies and they're actually deeply rooted in the inner worlds of these larger than life caricatures that were populating the screen if you look at something like the killer mm. uh john woo's breakout movie uh he uh it stars chow yun fat as this absolutely beautiful slick sexy hitman and in the course of the opening amazing shootout um he accidentally blinds uh, a nightclub singer who just happened to be there, who did nothing to do with mm-hmm. anything, who wasn't guilty of anything. And so he decides to dedicate everything he's doing to saving up, up enough money to get her like a cornea transplant to right his wrongs. And he ends up destroying everything just out of guilt and love. Mm. And there's sequences in the end, like uh, hard boiled where like the bad guy doesn't just have the hero at gunpoint. He has him like slap himself in the face and yell that he's impotent in front of everybody. Like these are movies about sort of tearing down the male facade. And when you look at something like Chunking Express, which is ostensibly a crime movie, which is ostensibly a cop movie, what is it actually about? Dudes are sad. This is like Wong Kar Wai's image of masculinity in this universe is sad romance dudes. They're just sad, pathetic, 
lonely hearts. And the women around them have much more interesting worlds. <laughs> they're doing much more interesting things. They're career-minded. <laughs> they're exploring. They're, they're eccentric and have actual tastes and interests. Tony Leung is interested in nothing. At least Faye likes music. At least she's got some kind of outlet. Like, these are just shells of men and they're living for these women because women are much more interesting than these facades of men that we're seeing in a lot of these uh, things and what does Wong Kar Wai think they're filled with? Sadness mm. what, what would a typical cop in a cop movie be? Lonely and I find that to be about the facade but I think mm. there's something kind of kind of sweet about the way Wong Kar Wai views that facade yeah. as opposed well, to I... just you know, oh in Breathless What's the name of it? Is it uh, John... Bel- is it? Belmondo. Belmondo. Yeah. In Breathless, Belmondo, I, I don't feel like his adherence to cinematic style and the and the cool mm. that he wants to extrapolate from Hollywood movies comes from a place of, like, a pure soul. It, oh, it goodness, feels, no, no. Yeah, it's fact, much more the, cynical the, about the, it, yeah, I think, than this movie. Uh, Breathless, Belmondo's character in Breathless is kind of a pathetic figure. Yeah. Uh, he... he uh, is so devoted to uh, sort of the the cool of crime that he doesn't realize that real death is involved in this. And he's actually just sort of inviting real world death when he only knows cinema death. Right. And Uh, I feel like that's that's, Jean-Blanc Belmondo, if he was in Chunking Express, this would be a very different movie. And instead we've we've got these incredibly sexy, uh, hunky cops who are all style, got a a criminal... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, drug runner who looks right out of a De Palma movie, and what are they? What are they filled with romance? Uh, it's I, a different vibe. I, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. uh, all, everything you said about sort of the, this deconstruction of masculinity, especially yeah. as it was going in uh, Hong Kong concurrent Hong Kong cinema. Yeah, uh, and I, I see where Wong Kar Wai was going with his men. Mm-hmm. And I see where he was going with the woman in the blonde wig because she actually had a little bit of agency and she was mm-hmm. moving through this world a lot. And she actually was, I feel like, in control of of her life. And uh, what, one of the a repeated line of dialogue is that they came within 0.01 centimeters of each other. Like they yeah. barely, they almost touched. They came in really yeah. close. And that was like ju- just sharing that space for a brief moment was enough to sort of get their hearts to lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... In in the the world of this cop who's supposed to be moving fast but has slowed down, and uh, this drug runner who has to keep on moving, I feel like there's a little bit of a balance. There's like a poetry sure, I between those two characters. Yeah, I see why you like that one better. And uh, I feel with the other one, though, uh, we get to know Tony Leung really well. We get to sort of see his longing, mm-hmm. uh, his aching longing. Uh, <laughs> Proto aching. But, but I feel like uh, the, the Faye Wong character is... is a, incredibly inscrutable. Like, I don't know what her goal is here. I don't sense a lot of agency for her. And that's why I keep on referring to her as a manic pixie dream girl. I don't see, uh, like she's clearly into this guy, Mm -hmm. but beyond that, you know, and she's, and she listens to music, but she does Mm -hmm. seem to be a lot of like just a collection of artifice. Mm. And, uh, as such, she's not really emerging as a character in the same way. Some of the other people are in this movie. I think what Fei Wong's character kind of represents is Mm. this aspect in a lot of people of there's someone that you have feelings for. Mm. And a lot of people, and I've, I've been guilty of this many times, uh, are not comfortable expressing those feelings because there's a danger there. Uh, mm-hmm. You're exposing yourself. Uh, you're you know being vulnerable. You leave yourself open to to being, uh, you know, let down by mm-hmm. even just circumstance. Uh, and yet she doesn't let it get in the way of her being a part of his life. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something kind of 
weirdly affectionate about that. Uh-huh. Where it, I think that is actually what she's doing. She is being as actively uninvolved with his life as she possibly can be. She's not actually yeah, saying she, anything outright, but she try, is trying, absolutely trying to, infecting his life. Trying with her to presence. be in his life yeah. without talking to him, essentially. Yeah. And there's something, I'm sorry, I think there's something kind of like weirdly old fashioned romantic about that. Like, um, like if this were like a tragic poem from the 1800s <laughs> where like, you know, this, this, this woman like They're broke deep, into this man's house. They just can't say anything. Yeah. You know, like other, that, yeah. it's a kind of a, a different, like a, a different kind of passion, but you put it in a modern context. It feels totally different. The one thing I kept thinking of, and this is all totally new context. This is, would never have come up individually. And I don't even know if this is the case, but I wonder if there's a connection here. Um, drive my car. Hmm. Drive my car movie uh, came out last year. Yusuke uh, Hamaguchi. Yeah, amazing motion picture, uh, and it is about um, a man who is a theater director, and he's uh, married to uh, an actress, and uh, she is also like writing, and she writes stories, and she wakes them up in the middle of the night, and if he remembers them, they're good enough to write down and put in their stories. Uh, the story that she's telling him over the course of Drive My Car is a story of a young woman who keeps breaking into a guy's house because she's infatuated with him and doing little things, leaving pieces of herself, changing things around uh-huh. without him knowing. And I can't help but wonder if <laughs> he's... I'm sure he probably has seen Chunking Express, but maybe he hasn't. I don't know. But, like, is this an intentional call-out? Is that some the sort of? I, I didn't. I didn't put that together. But I yeah, want. Uh, I want. It's, it's pretty similar. It's, it's entirely possible. It's pretty. These guys isn't a cop in that story, but mm. the actual nuts and bolts of the tale. I, I, I wish I are could not remember. Similar. I, I I know I've heard stories like this before, and I wish yeah. I could remember like the actual source. But yeah. this idea of like breaking into someone's house and spending time in their space. Right. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's a creepy stalker and, thing usually, yeah, and, and Chunky Express like, is trying to make it kind of quasi romantic. If you ever saw the film One Hour Photo, there's a sequence where this guy breaks into the family's house and just yeah. like kind of looks through their stuff and uses their bathroom just because yeah. he likes being there the only way that chunking express can get away with that story without just mm. being kind of terrifying uh is if we are if the Faye is seen as completely non-threatening mm. and i think that might contribute to some of that manic pixie dream goal energy you're going to because mm. he can't present her as any form of darkness yeah. Without this story not well, being I, romantic at it, all. It's not just the darkness. I, I see that it, it's kind of hard to project uh, too many human qualities on her. I feel like the, the flight attendant has a lot more agency. She's the one yeah. who actually well, has... Yeah. It's not about agency. The whole point is she doesn't have agency. If she had agency, she'd just ask him out. I, I, I suppose so. And, and, uh, this it, is her tragedy. She can't do that. <laughs> okay. You know, why, did, why did she put on loud music? Because she wants to talk to people? No. Because she's good at communicating? Mm. No. <laughs> she's bad at it. That's mm. the point. So I like that story more than you, and I, I guess I've made my point. But it's I also know a lot of people who prefer the the first story, okay. so I totally get it. Yeah, um, I, I like the first story a lot. I think there's just a, a lot of character and drive, and it, I I think the quirk like. I keep using the word quirk, just sort of like the unusual yeah. habits of the characters. Yeah. Uh, feel a little bit more relatable in that first story. Sure. Uh, the second one feel, it feels a little bit too stylized for my, uh, my, uh, my taste. It's funny to me because like you say, like how relatable they are. And yet they're the ones who are like immersed like in this stri- world of yeah. organized crime. <laughs> like how relate, did something you want to tell me Whitney? Cause I relate far more to people who are lonely at restaurants. Oh, well, I mean, if you need some heroin, <laughs> I'm not really a drug dealer. Wink. Anyway. No wink. I'm not a drug dealer. (laughs) 
Anyway, <laughs> not, uh, wait, wait a minute. You guys aren't cops, are you? Your last, uh, any last thoughts on Chunking Express? What'd you think? Uh, I, I I wish I liked it more. Yeah. Um, I don't dislike it though. I, I would yeah. I would give this a recommend. I think people should see this movie. Yeah, just didn't blow uh, your mind. It's I understand that it did blow a lot of people's minds. Yeah. It made its way into a lot of top ten lists, but it also made its way uh, kind of into the middle of a lot of critics. So mm-hmm. you, you look it up on sort of like the Rotten. I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think it has like an eighty percent. Yeah, it's so it's not like unanimously but, beloved, yeah. but you know it it was. Uh, a big boon in terms of its success for the way a lot of uh, international cinema was going to be a lot more enthusiastically distributed uh, in the following years. Yeah. Uh, and the 1990s were a pretty good time, especially when you look at kind of like a Miramax catalog yeah. of a lot of these films that were being imported to the United States. Miramax shaved them down and recut a lot of these movies. Yeah, a lot of them um, pretty badly, too. Uh, um, and there are a lot of films that Miramax would acquire specifically to never release them, uh, uh, which is shit. And it wasn't until yeah, so they started going under that these movies started getting Blu-ray releases finally, like classic Hong Kong so movies, like there it's are a just lot of good movies. Crime, what they did, but I, I appreciate. Yeah. I, I think it was Miramax that distributed um, mm. Christoph Kieslowski's Three Colors in the U.S. I think so, and, but I'm not 100 uh, yeah. percent on that. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look that up, but yeah. um, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I love those movies. Right. Uh, yeah. See, see the Three Colors. I'll throw oh, yeah. them. They're great, and, and be sure to see them in order because they they don't <laughs> make sense otherwise. Uh, blue, white, and red. Okay. I think you can uh, see red on but, it. So I don't think but red, I, red I, I feel, works on it. I feel like uh, like Chunking Express was really one of the things that sort of kicked the door open in terms of uh, Quentin Tarantino being mm. a little bit more of a cultural presence beyond the films he was making. Yeah, he was more of a presenter. Yeah, like yeah. Fo- Tar- follow what Quentin Tarantino yeah. is so, doing. Um, he will send you to good movies. So yeah, quite, yeah. and again, I, I'm not giving any value judgments no. here. I'm just sort of saying things that happened. That's just he, what it was like in the late 90s. He started his own video yeah. label. It was called Rolling Thunder Pictures uh, to specifically to start spreading around sort of his favorite yeah. movies. And his second film he released, I believe, was Mighty Peking Man, which did mm. not have the same cultural impact. Uh, also, also uh, he also re-released uh, Switchblade Sisters. Those are some yeah. of the Which the is a cool titles. movie. Which is a cool Switchblade movie. Switchblade Sisters is pretty damn cool Yeah, movie. pretty fucking awesome, actually. Mighty yeah. Peking Man is, is absurd, but it's a lot of fun to it's, watch. It's fun, but it's not going to change it's your a, life. It's, it's a King Kong knockoff. Yeah. Um, anyway, that is it for Critically Reclaimed. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, next time on Critically Reclaimed, our poll over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network is going to be, hey, we're still in a romantic mood. We're going to do romance movies on Tubi. Tubi TV is typically perceived as the cult streaming service. They have a lot of rare, bizarre horror movies, sci-fi movies, action movies, westerns, and honestly, their their selection is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> Especially if you don't have like the highest possible standards. Like if you like schlock, they have oh, so yeah. much fun shit. But they also do have some respectable films. So we're going to go some. with so we're going to go <laughs> well, with some well, romance movies. One in movies. every thirty is, is a respectable movie. We're going to go with some romantic movies that are available on Tubi, and you can vote for any of these, and we will review them on the next episode of Critically Reclaimed. Uh, the nominees are Cactus Flower, starring Goldie Hawn. I believe that's the one she won an Oscar for, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Eat, drink, man, woman, uh, which was another uh, '90s indie uh, international darling. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Yeah, which e- is eat and drink and man or woman. Yeah, then they all had sex. Uh, then there was <laughs> Girls Just Want to Have Fun, uh, starring uh, Sarah Jessica Parker and Helen Hunt. And uh, dang it, they just want to have fun. They want to go on a dance show. They just want to have fun only. 
Nothing else. It's a little reductive if you think about it. And then lastly, uh, the Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, uh, 1990s Oscar-winning drama, The Remains of the Day, uh, which is one of the more excitingly understated movies you will ever see. I saw that movie when I was, like, whenever it came out. I, was, I guess it was, like, 13. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> he's, a, he's a butler. She's... Kind of a butler. I, I don't think. Are it's... they going to do anything? We're just going to chill here. And then I saw it again as an adult, and I'm like, oh, there's so much going on. I, I would, I would love to meet the 13 year old who's really into the remains of the day. Yeah, right. It's like it's not. It's like specifically, it should be rated R just for like pacing. Yeah. <laughs> like, I remember. Uh, uh, this is something uh, Roger Ebert said. He said the great uh, irony of the R rating is that the bulk of R rated movies appeal to yeah. people under 17. Yeah. It's like Remains of the Day is not rated R. That's going to appeal to adults. But, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 is rated R. And it's pretty you know, ironic. 14-year-olds want to see that movie. Uh, quick, quick correction. Remains of the Day did not win any Academy Awards. It was nominated for a bunch. I was thinking of Howard's End. That won Academy, that won Academy Awards. Academy Awards. Yeah. Which were kind of right back to back to each other. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway. Uh, anyway, that is it for Critically Reclaimed. Head on over to Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network if you want to vote in that poll. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons for keeping this show afloat. If you want to talk about anything we discussed in this episode. If you want to... Uh, mm-hmm. Ask us questions. You want to uh, critique our critiques. Tell, tell me how wrong I am about Wong Kar Wai. Tell please. him, tell him just, how right he is. Just make him feel better. He's, <laughs> he's a good guy. Uh, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Or you can send us, if you're feeling very 90s, you can send us an actual letter, a physical letter, a piece of paper or similar substance in the mail. You can do it on a napkin if you want it, I guess. And uh, yeah, Whitney, what if is... If you send us a napkin, we're reading that crap. We read anything uh, we get in the mailbox, but mm-hmm. what is uh, what is our uh, P.O. box? Whitney? Send it to uh, the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. And of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And until next time, this is how I end this podcast. Oh, <laughs> oh,